Hello and welcome to this week's Memcast. We've got Dr Gupta with us, who's one of the respiratory registrars in the East Midlands, and today we're going to be talking about COPD, some of the symptoms, signs you might see, how to investigate, and some general rules about management. Morning, thanks for having me. So what I'll try and do is quickly go through all the uh, signs, symptoms, investigations, and try and concentrate a bit more on the uh, management plan, because I think that's normally a topic of questions so it can be a little bit complicated with the, the guidelines changing so often. Mm-hmm. So essentially, regards to COPD, it's an umbrella term that encompasses previously known terms such as uh, bronchitis and uh, emphysema, normally characterised by progressive and irreversible narrowing of the airways, the larger airways, and then subsequent destruction within the smaller airways and the alveolar spaces, which normally leads to a reduced surface area for gas exchange. Mm-hmm. In terms of why it's important, well, it'll be probably one of the most common diagnoses that uh, people will come across in the medical profession. And in actual fact, it's becoming a topic of increased interest because worldwide, previously used to be the fourth leading uh, cause of mortality. Now it's bumped up to third. And I think projections to uh, 2030 uh, suggest it'll increase even more uh, steeply. Normally, the risk factors associated with it, obviously predominantly smoking related, but you should also consider other noxious substances such as pollutants, which is now becoming a bit more an important factor, coal, and then there's a genetic component to it as well with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency being considered a differential in people, particularly if they've got younger presentation of COPD or if they've got other comorbidities such as liver disease. In terms of symptoms, Typically, people present with a cough, which can be productive. You can have a shortness of breath, which is normally gradual and progressive. A wheeze, which sometimes can be described more during the morning, and increased propensity to having uh, chest infections. In more severe cases, there are uh, obviously leg swellings uh, associated with corpomonali. Those three, four symptoms are the, the kind of typical presentation. In terms of signs, I'll relay it in terms of what I'd expect uh, to see in in a PACES examination. From the end of the bed, you might see a cachectic-looking patient who might be using respiratory accessory muscles for their breathing. They might have a typical pattern of breathing, which is called purse-lipped breathing, which normally opens up the uh, larger airways and makes it a little bit easier for them to breathe. Then looking at their hands, they might have some nail discoloration and some tar staining on their fingers. Moving on to their chest, they may have reduced chest expansion, uh, bilateral and symmetrical. And on auscultation, there may be signs of reduced air entry globally. There may be a wheeze. There may be what's called a prolonged expiratory base. And they may have some crackles, particularly if there's uh, associated bronchiectasis. As well as this, they may have some other complication signs as well. So they may have a raised JVP. And they may also have a loud P2, which is uh, often seen in corpulmonali. So in terms of investigations, the gold standard investigation would be a spirometry. NICE guidelines suggest doing a spirometry in anyone that is above the age of 35, has been a previous or a current smoker, has symptoms of progressive shortness of breath. And a positive finding for diagnosing COPD would be an obstructive picture on a post-bronchodilator spirometry, which is an FEV1 FVC ratio of less than 0.7. You can also use spirometry to be able to categorize the severity of the disease as well. And the gold guidelines suggest using the gold severity model, which normally has mild cases where the FPV1 predicted uh, percentage is 
more than 80%, but you also have to have symptoms associated with that. Then the moderate category where you've got FEV1 percentage predicted between 50 and 79%, severe, which is 30 and 49%, and very severe, which is anything less than 30%. And a note from this as well, there are other ways to be able to categorize the severity, and you can use something called the modified MRC dyspnea scale as well. Zero classification would be where you're getting short of breath only on vigorous or moderate exercise. One is if you're getting short of breath on climbing stairs or going uphill. Two, if you're able to walk on flat surfaces but it's at a slower pace than everyone else. Three, if you're having to stop before 100 yards. And four, if you're housebound as a result of your shortness of breath. So that's the main way of diagnosing COPD, but you can use other investigations as well. So full blood count, you may see some polycythemia. You can use a chest x-ray, which would normally show classical signs of uh, hyperinflation, flattened diaphragm, and you may also be able to see some bullying. As well as looking at for, uh, all of these uh, changes consistent with COPD, do make sure you look out for any suspicious nodules or masses as well, because lung cancer is a very, very common comorbidity associated with COPD. But we'll come on to that in a bit. You can also do a CT chest, which again, we would be looking for any particular bulla. But in terms of the pattern that you'd see, it's emphysematous changes, and these can be either described as a centrilobular or a pan asana pattern. As well as this, if you're considering uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, you can do some uh, genetic tests. People should have sputum samples sent off uh, as well, particularly if they're exacerbating to see if there's any common uh, organisms causing these exacerbations. Moving on to management, I think this is the bigger topic. And what I normally emphasize with COPD management is that it's very, very important to actually concentrate on the non-pharmaceutical options for uh, management, because actually the only evidence-based things which may actually uh, reduce the disease progression, or in some cases, even in early stages, reverse the disease progression. And of these, exercise and stopping smoking are the most important thing. In fact, the gold uh, guidelines have uh, suggested carrying out five things, even before you think about what inhaler you'd be uh, wanting to prescribe. So these five things are smoking cessation, referral for uh, pulmonary rehabilitation if appropriate, going through self-management strategies, particularly to do with exacerbations, getting their vaccinations, so their yearly immunizations for flu vaccines and their lifelong pneumococcal vaccination. And as well as this, comorbidities is another very, very important arm. So in terms of smoking cessation, referring for uh, smoking cessation services is normally the best. However, using nicotine replacements such as Champix, lozenges are all very, very important. In terms of pulmonary rehabilitation, the NICE guidelines normally suggest referring if people have a modified MRC stiffness scale of two or more. But the good thing about pulmonary rehabilitation is that uh, not only does it help improve the breathing efforts, the symptoms of uh, dyspnea, but actually helps improve muscles of the leg, so their exercise tolerance improves. They have education on breathing exercises, so they can manage their exacerbations a little bit better as well. And also from a psychological point of view, meeting people who have similar symptoms, similar diseases also helps psychological well-being. In terms of talking about self-management strategies, making sure they have rescue courses at home and knowing when exactly to take rescue courses is very, very important. 
and as well as this having breathing exercises to be able to expectorate the phlegm again is a very important task. In terms of immunizations that's pretty self-explanatory and then looking at comorbidities the most common comorbidities that are associated with mortality in COPD are heart disease and lung cancer. So always have a low threshold to carrying out a CT scan in someone you suspect lung cancer and COPD. And with heart disease, again, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that people are more prone to getting heart disease following an exacerbation. So it's very important that we screen these people for any particular risk factors that might make them more likely to getting cardiac disease. So that's the non-pharmacological aspect of things. In terms of inhalers, NICE suggests that you can either give a combination of inhalers, which can be as a LABA-LAMA combination, which is long-acting beta agonist plus a long-acting muscarinic agonist, or you can give a LABA-ICS, which is long-acting beta agonist plus an inhaled corticosteroid. So these are second line once you've tried a short-acting beta agonist such as salbutamol. The NICE guideline suggests that uh, LABA-LAMA would be more of an appropriate second-line combination if people are symptomatic, they have severe uh, disease, and if they have a non-typical asthmatic component to their disease. Now, when I say non-asthmatic uh, component, what I mean is they haven't got uh, much variability, they haven't got much ATP, they haven't got much uh, eosinophilia, and actually if they have any PFRs, uh, it doesn't vary throughout the day. If, on the other hand, they do have all of these asthmatic components, then LABA ICS would be more uh, appropriate. Although in a clinical setting, I normally tend to prefer giving LABA-LAMA combinations for people that are more symptomatic with shortness of breath, and LABA ICS for people that have more exacerbations. And if obviously they're not getting any better on the combinations, then you can try triple therapy, which is both LABA, LAMA, and ICS combination. So that's the inhaler strategy and you've got different types of inhalers that you can try. Biolto is a LABA-LAMA combination. Foster, Symbicort are LABA-ICS combinations, again, which are very, very uh, commonly used. Although these are changing very often with new drugs coming out all the time. Tablet forms of medications for a COPD, they're very lower down the list, but you can give long-term antibiotics, such as azithromycin as an option, if they've had frequent exacerbations. And you've had sputum samples which haven't shown any particular organisms being the culprits causing these uh, infections and they're not smoking at the moment and they've got sputum production. But before you start azithromycin it's important to have some baseline tests such as ECG and LFTs as side effects include prolonged QT interval and uh, deranged LFTs. Other things like theophylline can be used particularly if the inhaler is not tolerated by these patients although it doesn't have a great amount of evidence behind it. Medications such as mucolytics are very, very useful in terms of being able to loosen the phlegm. However, we do not regularly recommend for it to be used to prevent exacerbations. So those are the normal tablets given. Roflumilast is another tablet that can be given uh, in certain cases with frequent exacerbations. However, it is not very commonly used and it's normally prescribed in a tertiary centre. Then there's a surgical option for lung volume reduction surgery as well, which normally is carried out in tertiary centres and it involves taking out areas of uh, bullet's disease where there's not a lot of gases exchange happening which uh, takes up a lot of space within the uh, volume of the thorax and therefore prevents people from actually being able to take adequate ventilatory uh, air in 
for uh, adequate ventilation. It's shown to improve symptomatology and improves exercise tolerance, although it has no effects on the uh, overall mortality for uh, people who have COPD. Criteria for this normally tends to be the fact that if you've tried medical therapy, non-pharmacological therapy, none of it's worked in terms of symptomatology. They've got severe disease, FEV1 less than 50%, but they haven't got too much of a severe disease where the FEV1 is less than 20%. So almost the Goldilocks kind of percentage predicted value is, is what is taken between the 20% and 50%. But they go through a series of tests including echocardiograms, ventilation perfusion, uh, matching CT scans to be able to make sure they get the right area to be able to help with the symptomatology. Mm-hmm. Other things like long-term oxygen therapy, I won't go into too much detail about acute exacerbations and NIV, again, I won't go into too much detail about. The only other thing I would say is nutrition and psychological support is another very important arm for these patients because they become very cachectic very quickly and this seems to be an associated link to mortality as well. In terms of prognosis, which is the final thing I'll talk about, factors that can contribute to a prognosis include FEV1, MRC dyspnea scale and exercise tolerance, if they've got baseline hypoxia, if they've got frequent exacerbations, uh, reduced BMI and poor nutrition. Those are all factors that increase morbidity and mortality. And things that can improve prognosis, like I said, vaccination, stopping smoking, pulmonary rehabilitation and long-term oxygen therapy. Okay, so that's a whistle-stop tour in terms of DOPD. Hope it's been exhaustive, but at the same time, if you need some more information, NICE guidelines are normally a good pickup point for this. Okay, thank you very much. Brilliant, thank you very much.